0: Good morning everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they them theirs. I'm going to try and find this light for you. Um, And we are in the middle of a series called Sunday School Horror Stories where we're going into a lot of the stories um, that Christians tend to tell to children often because they feature other children or animals despite the fact that they are horrifying. So we've talked uh, about Noah's Ark um, and the mass flood and the genocide and the rainbow and how to reclaim hope in that story and to find God's love and message of salvation and accompaniment in that story and in the fall of humanity with Adam and Eve and the serpent. But today we're going to take on a story that uh, will come as no surprise to you, is close to my heart, Jonah. Jonah. So what do we know about Jonah? We've done a little bit of like a a call out, you know, crowdsourcing of information on some of these stories so far, because I want to get a sense from the room. Do we know anything about this story? We know there's Jonah and what else? The whale, right? Jonah and the whale. What else do we know? The end. No. He's supposed to go somewhere, not into it, go somewhere else. Other other things we know about this story? We've been taught about it? Denouncing. Oh, all that, all at once. Denouncing? Denouncing, Denouncing what came from the back? Thrown off a boat and eaten by a fish. What? Thrown off a, boat. thrown off a boat. All right. How? Huh? Obedient and disobedient. How many of us have heard that this story is about what happens if you disobey God's orders? Yeah. Yeah, this one's a little rough. And honestly, for me, that's the most horrifying part of this story. Like there's a, an element of, of actual horror in this like enormous uh, fish. We often call it a whale um, that that can swallow people whole and hold them captive for days and all this stuff. But the more horrifying part of this story for me is the, the story that we've been given um, that says that this is what happens. This is a punishment. God will coerce you into doing God's Um, And if you don't do it, well, you better look out for the scary sea creatures who are coming after you, or you're going to get thrown off a boat. Is that generally the idea that we've gotten from this story? I'm seeing some nods. Yeah, so the the short version of what we've been told um, is that Jonah um, is sent by God to go to Nineveh. We don't often have a lot of context for Nineveh. It's just a place with a cool name. Uh, so like, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, nah, I'm out. And runs in the opposite direction. A lot of us don't know, um, where he was going. He was going to a place in scripture called Tarshish. Um, and, and so he's going to Tarshish. He stops in Joppa, which is, um, like a port city, hops on a boat. So, uh, so he's on this boat and things go poorly. Things go poorly. There's a big storm and everybody on the boat is freaking out and they're like, everybody pray to your gods. And, and the assumption was like all these different members of this party on the boat had different gods that they were asking for help. Um, and, and in the midst of this, we know uh, from, from what I'm hearing, right? Some of us have heard that uh, they decide to show, throw Jonah off the boat. They're like, Jonah, you're the problem. Get off the boat. They pick him up, chuck him over. And so then somewhere in there, right, thrown off a boat, eaten by a fish. So we'll go with that interpretation because that seems consistent with what I've heard. Um, So, you know, so Jonah gets thrown off a boat and immediately just gets chomped by this big old fish. And then kind of cuts a deal with God and is like, okay, I'll do your bidding. God spits him out on dry land and he goes, and then we don't really hear a whole lot about what happens after that. Right? Am I missing anything? All right, terrible story, terrible story, (laughs) or maybe interesting story, a lot of fun elements, a lot of magical realism in there that I'm super into, but not a very good God, and kind of a a, a battered Jonah, am I right? This Jonah who, sure, is disobedient, oh, is cast as the villain in this story, is just not, um, not obeying God, but then just gets punished and punished and punished until he relents, And that, uh, you may have been noticing a theme of some of our common cultural interpretations of these stories, depicts a very abusive relationship between God and humanity, wherein we are subject to the violent whims of a God who demands our obedience and doesn't really care a whole lot about our well-being. That's an awful story to base um, a, a faith on. It's an awful story to base a call on or to call yourself. But that is not my Jonah story. And I wanna share with you some more of the complexity of scripture as I've understood it, and the ways that the Jonah story has actually become really, really rich for me. So I'm gonna tell you a longer version, one with a little bit of my own commentary, but a surprising amount of uh, faithfulness to the actual words of scripture. In, In the beginning of this story, we have Jonah. Jonah's said to be a prophet, which means that he's in conversation with God. He knows who God is. She's been talking to him a while. Jonah, we know, is an Israelite. He has been um, part of an oppressed community for his entire life because the Israelites are are oppressed by the Assyrian Empire, this massive force in their world, and, uh, and have been brutalized by the Assyrians. And so Jonah, in his oppressed community, is speaking to God. Now, most of the prophets of God in the scriptures speak to their own home communities. They will condemn other nations, but they're never sent out. There's only one other case in all of scripture where a prophet gets sent out to a foreign nation to proclaim the word of God. So Jonah is doing his thing in his tradition, speaking God's truth to the people of God. And we don't really know what's going on with Jonah We know from the testimony today that you can be somebody deeply engaged in church, deeply engaged in faith, and have periods of feeling very removed from God. We don't know if Jonah was feeling close to God and loved or far from God and alone. But Jonah gets a word from God, gets an instruction. God says, go out to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, when God calls Nineveh great, he's not, this is not a compliment. It's just big. It's just Bible for big. And so God is saying, this huge force, this force in your world, that great city, their wickedness has come up before me. Their wickedness I have recognized. Now, the wickedness that God is talking about here is the violence against Jonah and his people. The violence against Israel. Because Nineveh is the heart of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh, this great Assyrian city, needs to be called out. And for whatever reason, God knows that they need to be called out by Jonah, by one of the people that they are victimizing. And so Jonah, for reasons that might be a little bit easier to understand now, That we know that these are Jonah's oppressors. These are the violent abusers in his context. These are foreigners who have been hurting him and his country. This is outside of the realm of the call that he thought he was signing up for. He goes the other way. And the text actually says that he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. This call on his life, this instruction from God is so abhorrent to him that not only is he fleeing from that call, he is trying to flee from the sight of the Lord. Later in the book, he describes to the sailors that that the God that he worships is the God who made the sea and the land. Jonah knows that there's no getting away from God. Jonah knows God so intimately that Jonah knows there's no going away. And still, he tries to run. He runs to the ends of the earth, the literal ends of the known world, actually, because Tarshish, um, some of the scholars think, is uh, is connected to a port city in Spain, which is known as the outer edge of the then-known world. And along this journey to flee from God, to just go to the ends of the earth, to say, I, don't, I can't, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't have it in me. Jonah goes through a series of descent. Geographically, he descends lower and lower and lower, ultimately over the course of the story into the depths of the sea. But first he gets to Joppa, where he gets on a boat to Tarshish. And it says that God hurled a great wind on the sea, a storm. Now, a lot of the stories that we tell from this time attribute everything to the direct will of God. And so there is kind of this understanding that God is causing this storm. And that is exactly how the sailors on the boat react as well. They think the divine forces are at work here. This is not just any random storm. Something bad is happening. And so they start panicking. And they cry out, each to their own God. And they look for Jonah who is nowhere to be seen, and they find him. In the midst of this storm and this chaos, Jonah has descended again. He's gone deeper, deeper into himself, deeper in his pushing away of the world and of creation and of God. He has gone further into himself. He is in the belly of the boat. He is down in the depths of the boat, asleep, in the depths of sleep. Jonah is trying everything to close himself off from the pressures of the world around him, from this call, from this invitation to do something so difficult, so abhorrent, so awful that he can't imagine it because he can't trust that it is for him. It must be something awful. He fears that God does not have his well-being at heart. He fears that he is being sent into the lion's den with no protection and so he retreats into himself and to the sea and to the boat and into sleep. The sailors around him who are very present to the crisis at hand, shake him awake and say, "Wake up! This is happening! This is happening to us. Cry out to your God. Who is your God?" And Jonah explains, "My God is the God of the sea and the land. My God is the God of the known universe." And the sailors are like, "Well, we're in trouble then." Because if you say you're running away from that God, then there's no other God can come save us. And Jonah says, "I am. I'm I'm running away from God. That's what's happening. And I think you should throw me over the boat." Jonah tells them, "Throw me over to the boat." Because on the other side of the boat is the depths. Jonah's going to go deeper. Further, more internal, more into himself. The, f- the folks on the boat are like, nah, dude, like, that does not seem correct. So they start rowing for shore. Much more logical choice. But the sailors are trying to keep him with them, trying to say, no, we can weather this together. But it doesn't work. Jonah still can't say yes. And so, with Jonah's consent, they pick him up and throw him off the boat. And he sinks. This series of descents as Jonah just goes lower and lower, trying to run from God, to run from this call. And so he sunk deep, deep down, and then at the bottom of the sea, as the weeds were wrapping around him, wrapping around his head, as the dark closed over him. A miracle, arguably not the first in this story, a fish. See, Jonah was prepared to die for his failure, for his running. He wanted to double down on running away and say, this is too hard, I can't do this. And, and I've already turned my back on God, and God is here to punish me, this storm is here to kill me. Jonah, too, assumes judgment and punishment the way that we have been taught and so he sinks. He goes down to the deepest and farthest darkness to shoal the place of the dead. That is where he is headed. And he thinks that that is what God wants for him this punishment for his failure, for his turning, for his disobedience. But Jonah was mistaken. Scripture says, But the Lord provided a large fish, provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You see, while Jonah was sinking deeper and deeper, the Lord was still calling out to him and saying, come home, come back to us, be reunited with us. There is hope for you here. And in that moment, Jonah said yes and allowed himself to be rescued because the fish was not a judgment or a punishment or sent there to eat him or torture him or capture him. The fish was sent there to rescue him and to hold him because he wasn't ready to come back up yet. And so Jonah stayed in the belly of this whale in the embrace of the rescue of God, trying to figure out if he could come to the surface or not. And he prayed. And he prayed, and he wrote some poetry. And that's the text that we read today. A poem said to be written from the belly of the whale at the depths of the sea about remembering God. Because that's what Jonah remembers at the depths of the sea. Jonah remembers, God is not after me. God is not coming for me to punish me, to hurt me. I hope that in that moment, Jonah remembers, God would not have sent me to Nineveh if it were not for my very well-being, if it were not for the love of me, if it were not for salvation, for me, for Nineveh, and for all of creation. Jonah has been in conversation with God his whole life. And she has promised him over and over again that salvation is his and is coming, that all will be made right, that God is the God who remembers, but we are the people who forget. Jonah had forgotten the love of God, the presence of God, the promise of God, and so in fear had retreated deeper and deeper and deeper into isolation. And God sent invitation after invitation and rescue after rescue, and finally... Jonah said yes. And so, after spending three days and nights together in this holding, in this period of of waiting, of discerning, of can I do this? I trust and believe that Jonah consented to surface. That he came out of his despair, acted again in trust, and so God commanded the fish to come. And the text says... It spewed Jonah out onto dry land. And I love, I love that phrasing, because rescue missions are rough. Like, coming up from the depth is rough, and, and smelly, and ugly. This one involves literal, vo- like, fish vomit, right? <laughs> Like, the beauty of this poem that he writes in this, like, moment of of solitude is contrasted then with, like, the visceral disgustingness of being puked out onto a beach, which is, like, sandy and salty already, and now you're covered in seaweed and fish bile. Like, this is an ugly rescue. But I love that phrasing for the same reason I love the phrase ugly cry, because there are so many ways that we tend to romanticize our pain and we want to hold on to it because it has its own kind of abstract beauty. But once we get to that point of ugly crying, we can't pretend anymore that we look cute while it's happening. And we have to face that, that pain is ugly, and that our suffering is real, and that we can't romanticize it or write it off, or say, this will make a story someday, or, or these, this will inspire my creativity. At some point, we have to face it and just say, this is ugly and hard, and I can't do it alone. And so, the fish and Jonah are ugly crying on the beach and saying, I'm here, I'm at the surface, it hurts, but I'm not alone anymore, and I am trusting in the love of God to take me where I need to go. Jonah's depths Jonah's isolation was Jonah choosing escape and detachment. But God keeps calling him out into liberation from that captivity. Jonah holds himself captive. It's not the fish. And God draws him out, calls him out into liberation, which is salvation. This is what God saves us from and for, is to be made whole, to be drawn out, from our alienation. We are so alienated from ourselves, from our community, from our God. Jonah, in the depths with the weeds around his head, could not feel connected to the God of love, could not feel connected to himself, to his call, his identity, couldn't feel connected to his people who were being oppressed. And so liberation is an invitation back into that painful connection. And it is ugly. But it is worth it. And it is the heart of salvation, is that reconnection, that reconciliation, that restoration to the way things were meant to be created, to be given to us so that we might be made whole with ourselves, with God, and with one another. So God never gives up on us, and God never fights, never uh, forgets us. God remembers us always and invites us to remember God and that invitation back into freedom, and liberation, and fullness of life. And it would be beautiful if the story ended right there. But actually, that's like the first act in a weird, complicated three-act play. So that's what sets the stage for the rest of this story, because the next piece of this story is what happens after Jonah gets spit out onto dry land. He goes, to Nineveh. God issues that invitation once more. God, this patient and persistent and loving God, says, hey, Jonah, I've got this thing for you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I will tell you. It says that the city is exceedingly large, three days walk across, which would be like 50 miles. Not historically accurate, but not the point, just one of the many pieces of evidence we have that this story is a parable and not a history text. And so Jonah walks one day's walk into it and gives one of the shortest sermons ever heard. I will uh, give it to you now. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. (laughs) And with that tiny message, Delivered faithfully from a prophet of God, a victim of the violence of this empire. Nineveh repents. Like all of Nineveh repents. Like for real repents, it's it's a phenomenal repentance, a miraculous, you could argue, repentance. Everyone immediately believes and drops everything. They start fasting and praying. The king instructs that no living thing, which is elaborated to specify. No, like it includes livestock. No living thing in Nineveh is allowed to eat or drink while we repent. Everything, including the animals, will be covered with sackcloth, which is the garment of repentance and of grief and of saying, I messed up. It says, all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is at their hands. That's what the king, the king of this this horrible city that has been the the heart of oppression in this part of the world is saying, all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. And in one of the the most uh, enjoyable for me casual verses in the Bible, it says, who knows? God may relent and change his mind. But there is this kind of, like, we will repent regardless vibe to it that says we see that we've done wrong, we see that we have messed up. And it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. Like, what if oppressors really did just repent? What would happen? What would it look like? What would it feel like if, without further convincing, our oppressors heard, us as oppressors, we heard, the wrong that had been done, felt conviction, and stopped, and made amends. I want you to think of this relative to any and all of the identities of oppressive oppressive power you hold. We all have intersecting identities of power and privilege and oppression. The deck is stacked for and against all of us in the world and and all of us differently, and so I wanna acknowledge that different folks have different levels of privilege or oppression in this room. Um, So, for instance, as as a white person, I have more oppressive power in this room than people of color. But we all, if only by virtue of the fact that we are aligned with the modern-day Assyrian Empire, which is the United States, we are, are benefiting from this oppressive power system. And at some level, we are all the folks that Jonah would become coming to preach to. So, if you're not an immigrant yourself, I want you to imagine for a moment Jonah as a Central American immigrant right now coming into the United States and preaching to us, to the US, repent. If you have not experienced this yourself, I want you to imagine for a moment a victim of sexual assault at the hands of men, now just preaching to all men in power, repent. If you've never been incarcerated, imagine for a moment someone who is suffering in prison, crying out, preaching to everyone who walks free, repent, and what if all of us, all of our systems of power and privilege and wealth, wealth just immediately repented, said, we messed up, we're done. We'll stop feasting and celebrating and pretending. We'll give up our wealth and our power. We will deny ourselves the luxury and decadence which demands the suffering of others. We will cover ourselves in sackcloth and ashes and make everything right. This is the correct response when we get called out on our stuff. Rather than retreat into ourselves, into the deep, into our shame and despair, or into our denial and rage and entitlement, this is what we're called to do. And it's possible. I admit that it sounds unlikely. It's a miracle on par with the fish that came to swallow Jonah. But the point here is that God has a vision for us even if we can't see it and choose against it over and over and over again. Jonah thought he couldn't do what God wanted and so ran and ran and ran and God just kept offering him a way back saw the captivity Jonah was putting himself in and offered a path to liberation, salvation, restoration. So too with Nineveh. We don't know the history of that particular empire and its specifics, but I'm pretty sure we can guess. Jonah was not the first prophet they heard from. Nineveh was failing over and over again, was running from the call of God to justice, was abusing people, was was leeching from the life that God had created, from all of creation, was abusing and pulling from that for its own gain. Over and over, Nineveh had forgotten who God was and who they were. And so here comes Jonah, messenger of God, running away from them. Nineveh failed and ran and ran. Jonah failed and ran and ran. And God offered both of them over and over invitation back into salvation, into liberation, into justice, into love. For Nineveh, that was to end their violence. And one miraculous day, Jonah the prophet and Nineveh the power holders said yes at the same time. God saw that Nineveh turned from their evil ways. Scripture says that calamity had been coming to them, but that it wouldn't any longer. In fact, Scripture actually says that God was going to bring down that calamity on them. But I think that that's a mistake to understand it that way. Because from from the rest of Scripture, but even from this own story, I think we see that whenever we anticipate violent judgment from God, we're actually internalizing and externalizing our own human judgment because God consistently offers a second chance, a third chance, an infinite chance. And that's what we see here, that God has been inviting Nineveh out of their own, the calamity of their own making, the violence of their own behavior, Their salvation is in their repentance, which is offered to them by God. Not that God would stay God's hand of violence, but that they would stay their own hand of violence and join God in a a project of liberation and joy. What God has in store for them is salvation from their own oppressive behavior. God has been inviting Nineveh to freedom and to liberation for all, which would have most most directly benefited Nineveh's victims but would have been for Nineveh, too. And today, in this story, they have finally said yes. And so, that brings us to Act 3. How do you think Jonah reacts to Nineveh's radical repentance? Oh, Jonah. Jonah, Jonah. You would think you'd be stoked. This is what he was sent there for, to induce this kind of reaction. And no one would have thought it would have come. Whoever sees the oppressor just lay down their arms and repent. But Jonah's pissed. Jonah's like, like really pissed. Like Jonah has like a heart to heart with God. And is just like, I knew you would do this. This is so you. Like, ugh! God! God! I would rather die than see this garbage. And if you think that I'm exaggerating about Jonah's attitude here, I'm just going to read to you directly. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me because it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah is angry. And it comes up that actually the thing that was pushing him the farthest from his call, that was making it feel so impossible, was not that as a victim of this empire, he would have to go stand before them, but that as a victim of that empire, he would have to see them be forgiven. And that was unimaginable for him. He would rather die. Jonah has a lot going on here, y'all. After this exchange, there's a weird, um, there's a weird instance with a bush. God grows a bush over Jonah to provide him shade, and then takes it away and asks Jonah, essentially. What do you have to say about what I created, about what's mine? How do you have a right to say that you'd rather die than see my creation forgiven? The text says, literally, and and should I not be concerned with Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and so many animals? And you see God's concern for Nineveh here. You see God throwing a little shade at Nineveh, too. Don't know their right hand from their left. But God's saying they made mistakes. They messed up. And they're my people. God is offering again salvation through forgiveness, through reconciliation. God asks Jonah that question. What right do you have? Should I not care about them? And then the story ends. We don't get an answer from Jonah. Jonah doesn't come to some deep revelation. Jonah still finishes out that story conflicted, saying, I don't know. I don't know if I'm with you, God, on this project, because liberation sounds good when it comes to victims, but the oppressed, how could you not punish them for what they've done? And that brokenness in Jonah's heart remains with us at the end of this story. So I want you to go back to that thought experiment when you were imagining oppressors. I want you to imagine from any status you hold as a victim or as oppressed. And I want you to imagine that the people you are calling to repent have said I'm sorry and I want you to imagine what it would feel like to see God embracing them. It's really painful for some of us. How does it feel to think about the folks who have hurt us most being welcome in the kingdom? Now, one of the things that I want to make very clear is that God is not calling for cheap repentance and saying, whoops, is not enough. But what if there was a way for the people who have hurt us most to truly realize the error of their ways and change? What happens then? That feels like it happens so rarely that we can't even imagine it. But what if? We've been given this thought experiment. What if all the powers of the world who had hurt you, who had hurt the people you love, what if they laid down everything they had and said, I messed up. I'm changed. And what if that was real? Could we trust it? Could we be on board with that? Would we want in our heart of hearts, would we truly want liberation and salvation for all, when all means our oppressors too? Or do we still hold on to that peace of judgment? Do we still want that retributive justice? Do we still want to see them suffer? That is the question that we are left with at the end of Jonah. Miguel de la Torre, writes about the book of Jonah. And he says that this book is for the oppressed. And it is a challenge to the oppressed specifically to go out and minister to the oppressors. As a person of color, he writes that he thinks it's specifically for people of color ministering to white folks, which is a very tough reading of the text. And de la Torre knows that he's not offering an easy solution here. At the very beginning, when he talks about what's at stake, he says, how could this ever be made right? Speaking specifically about Israel and the Assyrian Empire and Jonah's situation, he writes, could the Jewish mother who witnessed her son statistically tortured by the Assyrian armies offer forgiveness even if the Assyrians didn't ask for it? Could the hungry Jewish girl who would turn to prostitution because she was orphaned by the Assyrian invasion break break bread in peace with those responsible? Could the living offer redemption in the name of their ancestors who died in slavery, building up the Assyrian empire? Can the consequences of oppression ever be remedied? The answer of Jonah and the answer of the Gospel is yes, but it's not cheap and it's not easy. And it calls on all of us to take responsibility for it, not for the violence that has occurred, but for the invitation to liberation and salvation for all. That when we say reconciliation, restoration, we mean all. And that the alienation we experience inside ourselves and from ourself to God, and from ourself to our community, can only be healed when everyone is restored into wholeness, including those who have hurt us most. It's almost a different kind of horror story, am I right? This is a hard one. And I love that it is left open at the end of this book, because God... continue to say I will not forget you I am the God who remembers and I invite you to remember me that this salvation though it requires so much of you and seems to be for others is ultimately for you that you can only be made whole when all are made whole that's what we claim when we talk about solidarity and that is the heart of salvation will you join me in prayer Good and holy God, you have called us to a difficult path. You have called us to offer ourselves in love for one another in the midst of violence and chaos. You have called us to remember you even when we want to sink into our depths when we want to escape. You have called us into trust when the world is not trustworthy. God, we pray that we could put our trust in you. Trust in your ability to reconcile all things. Trust in your ability to work through us, work miracles through us. Trust in your promise to come rescue us when we are in the depths. And trust to put our hope in one another, your creation, your beloved, whom you will never forget or abandon. Amen. If y'all would stand with us.